You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. So today we have Adam Maleski. Come on up. Adam is um, our, our associate pastor of the Mill. He's been around a really long time, and he's studied church history, and he knows what he's talking about. So ladies and gentlemen, Adam Maleski. Hey, guys. Thanks, Joe. Uh, yeah, so like Joe said, I, I actually took church history from Joe, which is, so you're basically just getting a regurgitation of what Joe taught me. It's basically just as good as him teaching. Uh, no, just kidding. So this, uh, this week we're talking about the Reformation. We're talking about John Calvin. Um, and before we get started, I did want to just show, let you know that if you're new, if, if it's your first time, I just met Ashley. She's here for the first time. And she filled out her visitor card. There's a card on the table. Uh, if it's your first time, fill it out. Bring it to the table in the back afterwards, and they'll welcome you and give you a gift. We just wanted to say thanks for coming. We're really glad you're here. Um, but yeah, so let's get started with John Calvin. John Calvin, um, he, this is a picture of John Calvin. He was born July 10th, 1509. He died May 27th, 1564. Uh, and a little bit of background information about John Calvin. He he grew up um, raised by his dad. He had two brothers. Um, his mom actually died just a few, short, like a short time after he was born. I think it was, a, it was around a year or something like that. Um, and he, John Calvin grew up and he was really introverted and shy, uh, which, is, which is an important thing to remember for what we'll talk about later on. He kind of would, he, he didn't really like confrontation. He would prefer to not be out in the front leading things he, kind of, he preferred a kind of a backseat role in things. Um, his dad was kind of a clerk. He worked for the Catholic Church. And so when, when his mom, when Calvin's mom died, his dad basically took his three sons and, and in a sense, dedicated them to the church. And what that means is he, he basically said, like, my sons are going to work for the church. He, he wanted Calvin to be a priest. He kind of pushed Calvin in that direction, and Calvin followed and, you know, he was a really smart guy. He studied theology. He kind of would think about these things. He developed his own, his own beliefs, and he, in the sense that he, like, he studied them. Uh, and Calvin, so he grew up, he's, he's this young guy, and then he has this moment where he's like, he, he wants to study law. So he kind of changes course. He goes into studying law, and he's at school. He's a really smart guy. He, he you know, like is involved in some of these controversies, but he kind of shies away from the, the more extreme because he's introverted and shy. Um, and then his dad dies. So his dad gets cancer and dies. And he, Calvin at that time, kind of, I don't know if it was him kind of trying to honor his dad. He kind of shifts back into a study of theology. And so he goes back to seminary, starts studying theology again, and this is right about, I mean, it's all in the, the midst of like what we've been talking about this last month of the Reformation. So there's turmoil in the church where it was in, in the previous times, it was uh, the Catholic church was this one church. If you were going to go to church, you were going to go to the Catholic church. You were going to believe what they believed. You probably didn't have a Bible. You probably uh, didn't have access to studying anything other than what the, the priests and your church told you. So you're basically just Catholic. And so in the Reformation, all these things happen printing presses, print Bibles, you, you get this other experience and you get this other kind of option for the first time of what do we believe and what the Reformation starts and there's these other churches, these Protestant churches that start to pop up. So you can imagine that the world is in turmoil at this point. And Calvin, like I said, he's introverted and shy. So he's kind of moving around 
working on his studies. Um, and at one point in his life, he's on his way to Strasbourg. Uh, it's the city where uh, he basically picked it out. He's, he heard that Strasbourg, the Reformation, had kind of already swept through Strasbourg. And because of that, kind of all the turmoil that happened when the Catholic Church was upturned and the, the Protestant churches came in, all that had kind of finished. It was on the tail end of that. So he picks Strasbourg out and he says, I'm going to go there so that I can study and not have to be in the midst of all this controversy. And on his way to Strasbourg, he's, he's on this road and he encounters a detour in his life. Basically, all, all it is is there's some military things happening. There's some mil- they call them military m- maneuvers. They didn't really kind of go into much more than that. The, the military in this road is moving around. They're maybe coming down the road and he has to go a different way. So rather than his planned route to Strasbourg, Calvin ends up in Geneva, Switzerland. This is important because uh, before he gets to Geneva, before he goes on this journey, he's, he's already kind of developed some pretty significant theological works. Uh, Calvin's well known for, it's called the Institutes of Christian Religion. And this is kind of an early Reformation uh, writing about what it is that Protestants believe. So Calvin kind of sees that as the Reformation is happening, the Catholic Church and the, the Protestants are kind of butting heads, and they're kind of putting out these, these writings, these works, that talk about whatever, whatever topic is being debated at the time. So Calvin sees that there's a lot of writings about a certain thing, and it's kind of a response and, and kind of a dialogue happening between the Catholic Church and the Protestants, but there's not actually one book or one work that has all of the beliefs of the Protestants together. So he works on this thing called the Institutes. So he's kind of becoming well-known at this point. Like I said, he's introverted and shy, but people know who he is. So when he hits this detour, and he, rather than making it to Strasbourg like he wanted to, he ends up in Geneva, and he plans to stay in Geneva for one night. And there's this guy in Geneva um, who he's kind of like the head of the, the, the Reformation movement in Geneva. And he hears that, that Calvin is in town. Remember, Calvin is here one night. So Will Farrell, this is not a joke, Will Farrell lives in Geneva. Now, unfortunately, it's not this Will Farrell, it's that Will Farrell, but I wanted to give you a little picture so you'll remember who he is. But this guy named Will Farrell hears that, that Calvin is in Geneva. And he, so it's kind of like if you're the pastor of the biggest church in town, and this kind of new hotshot on the scene is in town. You take him out to lunch, and you take an Instagram picture so you can show your church that you had lunch with him, and you take a picture of your food and say, hey, John Calvin and I, at John Calvin, and hope that he retweets it. You're going to tell people, like, okay, this dude is here. He's a big deal. So Will Farrell and John Calvin meet, and it's, really, it's this, this tricky thing because, remember, Calvin is on his way to a, a different destination. He kind of ends up there on accident. He didn't plan for it. And Will Farrell is basically telling him, you need to stay in Geneva. We need your help. He, he recognizes that these institutes that Calvin has written, kind of the work that Calvin is doing, William Farrell recognizes this guy is a significant player in this thing called the Reformation. So he's trying to get Calvin to stay. And Calvin basically says, I don't have any interest in it. I want to just study, and I want to write, and I want to do that, but I'm not going to be the leader of a Reformation movement. And in this conversation, William Farrell, uh, you ever heard of the God card? People, you know, talk about it like in relationships, like, hey, I'm not going to date you because God told me so. And it's this really manipulative card 
um, that, that you can kind of pull and use on someone to say, God told me that you need to do this, or God said you need to do this. Well, William Farrell tells Calvin, it's the sweet quote of the day on your millet if you got it. He says, he says this to John Calvin, as John Calvin tells him, I don't want to be the leader of the Reformation here. I want to go and write. He says, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your succor and help. Like, whoa. So Calvin's like, dude, all I want to do is go study and you're saying that God's going to condemn me because you need help and I'm not going to help you because I don't feel like that's what I want to do. So William Farrell causes this great shift, and Calvin actually agrees to stay in Geneva, which is significant. So if you remember, he, so he's, the path of Calvin's life is he grows up kind of in the church, around the church. His dad wants him to be a priest. He goes into studying law. He, after his dad dies, he returns to the study of theology, and then he ends up in Geneva, which is like this place that he never really intended to be at, doing something that he never really intended to do. So when you look at this, and for those of you who, Joe asked if you've heard of Calvin, you guys all raised your hand, and you've probably all raised your hand because you've heard of Calvin in the sense that he has this doctrine of predestination, this doctrine of God's sovereign will kind of leading us to do certain things, leading, I mean, in essence, it really boils down to salvation um, and kind of the elect, which we'll get into later. But it's this idea that God has a plan and that he, he is sovereign enough to initiate that plan and cause that plan to happen. So for a young man who's introverted and shy, it might be, and this is kind of me thinking about this, this idea of your beliefs and your um, theology is kind of shaping, because we all, I would say, have different beliefs. We're all unique in exactly what we believe about some of the, the smaller, the less important things about faith, like should we or should we not do certain things, or should we or should we not pray in a certain way. All of our beliefs just look differently. And these beliefs, the, the term that I want to use is they don't form in a vacuum. So we don't just have this time in our life where we just get to pick and choose and say, this is what I believe, this is what I don't believe. I want to suggest that they form because of our life experiences. So for this young man who his dad kind of told him, you're going to be a priest, uh, and then he kind of goes into studying law and comes back to being a priest, it's like, He's like, oh, maybe my dad had a plan for me, and he knew it was right for me. And then later on, he, by the time he meets William Farrell, he already has this idea of predestination. But maybe he meets William Farrell and hears him say this quote to him and tells him, you need to stay here and help. And maybe Calvin says, you know, maybe, God, maybe this is God's plan. So this thing that Calvin has, this idea about predestination, maybe affects the decisions that he makes to stay in Geneva. Maybe it affects even the, the decision that he made to, to return to the study of theology, which is what his dad had originally intended. So I think when you, when you look at his life, maybe you don't agree with predestination or you don't agree with that part of his theology or what he kind of instituted in the Protestant faith. Uh, it's understandable to see, okay, maybe this is where it came from. Maybe it, he didn't just make this up. Maybe it's, you know, he saw something in his life, and that caused him to believe in a certain way. So, so John Calvin uh, stays in Geneva, and he really does a lot of really cool things um, that, that I'm going to talk about. But there's a few things where we might want to point out and talk about how his work is significant, but maybe we don't agree with it. One of the things that John Calvin believed is that uh, the church is a really powerful entity, and 
And we agree with that. We would say the church is a powerful organization uh, in the sense that we believe that we do have this power and we, we want to reach out to the world and we want to reach out to people. But Calvin kind of takes it a step further and he says, if the church is so important and so vital, then the state should kind of be subservient to the church. So you might say, well, ideally that might look awesome. But Calvin institutes in Geneva kind of these, these rules. He almost sets up these weird committees uh, that are kind of run by the state. They're part of the church, but they're like citizens around the, the city who are really wealthy. So it's basically a political system. And he creates these church discipline committees where some of the things that church discipline committees would focus on are things like church attendance. So if you didn't come to church on a Sunday, you would have someone there that, you're, that week like knocking on your door saying, hey, we realize you weren't in church and so that can't happen again or else we're going to kick you out of the church and we're going to tell you to leave Geneva. So it's a pretty significant thing. He also does things like, like, I mean, like, things like tithing. Basically, these church committees would help him decide if there was a heretic uh, and he was pretty strict on heresy. Uh, there was a guy, one specific instance of this, and there were many involved with Calvin, which kind of gives him a bad reputation. But this one guy, his last name is Servetus, and he is kind of running from the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church has kind of kicked him out. I think he might have considered himself a Protestant or reformer in a sense. The, Ca- the Catholic Church kicks him out, and he's kind of in exile. He escapes, actually. The Catholic Church... Um, after he escapes from their prison in absentia, which means when he's not there, they condemn him to die. So they basically say, we, we're going to kill him because he's a heretic, and we've chosen for him to die by a slow-burning death, which is awesome for, for a church to do. Um, it's actually not. But so uh, Calvin and this guy have been writing letters to each other, and they're kind of anonymous in the way that they write their letters to each other. Uh, Calvin never really says in his letters who he is. He uses a pseudonym, actually, a fake name. And this other guy never signs his letters. So Calvin and this guy are writing to each other. And they're kind of like talking about their opinions, their theologies. And uh, Calvin gets to a point in, in this dialogue, this kind of pen pal relationship or something like that, if you can call it that, where Calvin just kind of gets to this realization, this guy's a heretic. Uh, so I'm just going to stop writing to him. This guy writes, said he wrote like 30 more letters and Calvin just never responded. But then one day, Cal- one of the guys that's in Calvin's camp in Geneva says that this guy is here in town. He, he's on the run from the Catholic Church, and he made it here. So Calvin goes and finds him, and they basically bring him in and put him on trial. And they say, well, we can try you here in Geneva, or we can send you back to where the Catholic Church is looking for you. Uh, and this guy says, well, I want to stay here, because he knows that the Catholic Church has already said that he'll die a slow-burning death. Um, and basically what happens is the same thing. The Protestant church in Geneva finds him to be guilty as well. So they sentence him to death, and they sentence him to a slow-burning death. So the guy kind of doesn't really look out. But peop- the one thing that, that I, as I was reading and learning about Calvin is they said, it is good to note that in this instance, Calvin did agree that he was a heretic and that he should die, which, like I said, he did that with a lot of people that he deemed heretics. He would just condemn them to die. But in this instance, he did recommend that they kill him by beheading, just cut his head off real fast to make it a little bit more painless, which they said is, should be noted to show that he was a little bit gracious in the situation. I didn't really have the same sentiment. Um, so 
Calvin does ruffle some feathers in Geneva, and he kind of goes through this process where they actually kick him out at one point. Um, basically, the political system, the church and the state disagree. Uh, there's some powerful people who kick him out of Geneva and eventually welcome him back. Um, but like we talked about earlier, Calvin is really well known for some pretty significant doctrines, some pretty significant theologies within the Protestant faith, which which is what New Life would say we are. We're part of the Protestant faith, and we um, adhere to a lot of these Protestants that we might owe to Calvin. And one of the most significant ones is, does anyone know? I heard predestination. I'd like to talk about communion. Because while predestination is one of the most important things, and I was expecting at least someone to say that, um, communion is also this other thing where when you hear Calvin you hear Calvin's name, you think, oh, this guy that talked about predestination, free will versus predestination. It's this huge debate. But it's important to recognize that Calvin uh, really did help to shape one of uh, the really major players in the communion doctrine um, debate or if whatever discussion, if you can call it that. Uh, so basically, at, in his time, there's Catholicism, which believes in transubstantiation. If you don't know what that is, it's basically that... Um, there, when the priest and the Catholic Church takes the bread and the wine and he blesses it and he breaks it and gives it to people, then those substances, those, the bread and the wine, literally become the body and blood of Jesus. So it's a little bit gruesome, but it is their belief. And so you might say, that's a little bit strange. Like I, th I think I would say a lot of the people in this room probably don't believe that, if not all of us. Uh, but that was like the belief then. And so... Calvin kind of pushes against that. On the other hand, there's this, uh, this guy named Zwingli, who Joe talked about last week, and he kind of holds this idea, um, and Luther, and I guess, or sorry, Calvin was closer to Zwingli. Luther um, believes in this thing called consubstantiation, which is that basically the same idea, in the presence of the bread and the wine, are kind of in and around and with those things, those substances, are the actual presence of God, the actual body and blood of Jesus. So it's kind of like it's not totally changed into, but it's with. And Calvin brings in this idea that it's not really either of the two. And this is the idea that we at New Life, I think, would say we believe. And that's that when you take communion and you take the elements, it's not an actual physical change. It's not actually... Uh, the body and the blood being present with us here as we take those communion elements, but that it's a, it's a, a spiritual thing. It's the Holy Spirit kind of works through that act, works through that, um, that sacrament, and it helps us, it grows us in our faith. And he kind of associated it with the sun. And right now, like, the sun is gone. We can't really see it right now because it's really foggy. But what Calvin says is it's kind of like the sun, where when you go outside on a sunny day, the, the sun isn't present with you here. It's not, you couldn't touch it, you couldn't reach out and, and grab a hold of it. But the warmth of the sun kind of radiates and you can feel that. So you're, you're kind of warmed by what the sun is doing. And so that's kind of the idea that Calvin brings into the Protestant church. And he says, in communion, we kind of get this this presence, this radiation from the Holy Spirit that grows our faith when we take communion. So that's a pretty significant contribution to Protestant belief, is this idea of communion that Calvin brought into what we believe. Um, 
he, one of the quotes he said, and this is, I think, is a really cool quote. He said that the Eucharist was a secret too sublime for my mind to understand or, or words to express. But he said, I experience it rather than understand it, which I think is a really cool thing because if I was honest, I would say I don't totally understand how communion works. But it's this idea that we kind of come to the table and we receive from God and we don't offer anything at communion. We don't say, well, I'm going to bring this and I'm going to add my cool singing voice or this cool song that I wrote to communion. We come to communion and we take the elements and it's a gift from God, but we don't really totally understand it. But that's the point, Calvin says. It's, it's not really ours to understand, but it's ours to experience and participate in. Um, but moving on, Calvin did also have this pretty, pretty big impact in the predestination discussion. So some of you might know what TULIP is. And before we talk about TULIP, what I, what I wanted to point out is that when we talk about TULIP today, um, and it's basically these five, it's called five-point Calvinism, Calvin didn't necessarily write these out. He didn't necessarily uh, create this in his life. This was kind of added on later, um, kind of out of his work. The church took it and basically put it together and said, this is kind of what Calvin meant. But I want you to know that TULIP, as I talk about it, is kind of like the way that we can remember the five-point Calvinism thing. isn't necessarily something that he wrote out. But TULIP uh, talks about what Calvin believed in predestination. And so I'll kind of go through these. The T stands for total depravity, which basically communicates the fact that we're in this fallen state. Man is in a broken state. And total depravity is that we have no power by our own means to change anything. We can't uh, reach out to God and say, save us. We can't uh, do anything on our own behalf to save ourselves. We're basically stuck in this pit. Um, and, and Calvin would say, even for us who would accept the gospel, we couldn't do that on our own if it wasn't for God reaching out and getting us. So that's the T. The U is unconditional election, which Calvin would say is this idea that God picks people. And Calvin was even, um, he, he believed in double predestination, which to kind of explain that is God would pick out a group of people and say, these are my elect. These are the people who will receive salvation. Um, we'll get into more of the details of that in a second. But there's also this second group of people, this second group of people that I'm going to pick, almost as if God has like these lists of people. Um, and this second group of people is condemned. Like they're elect, he's chosen them to die and not be saved. So it's, that's a pretty significant belief too. Um, I don't know that I would agree with it, but, but it is a pretty commonly held belief in the church, um, and that's attributed to Calvin. Limited atonement is the L in TULIP, and that means that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for all of us. And that's a shocking thing to hear, I think. For me, the first time I heard that, I was like, wait a second, what does that even mean? And to explain it, I think as, as quickly and succinctly as I can to explain what Calvin meant, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die for all of us, because remember, he has, these, he has this group of people that he's picked, uh, that God has picked to receive salvation. So in a sense, it's like God doesn't waste his, his effort in dying on the cross on a bunch of people who won't be saved anyway. So his, his atonement only works for those people who have been elect, who have been elected, these, these elect people um, who have been chosen by God. Irresistible grace. What this means is that if you're on the list, if you've been elected by God, you can't refuse it. You can't choose, you can't tell God, no, I'm cool. 
with this whole thing. Like, I know I'm on your list, but I'm going to do something else. You, you don't have the ability to, to disagree, I, I guess is a good way of saying it. And then the P stands for perseverance. And perseverance of the saints is kind of the full term. And that means that if you're elect and you've received salvation, you can't lose your salvation. So as hard as you might try, if you're on the list and you've received salvation, you can do a bunch of bad stuff. And in the end, through whatever means God will, and we don't understand those, uh, you'll be saved. You'll, be, you'll make it into heaven. You'll receive salvation regardless of what you've done. So... How many of you guys in this room would say that you've heard of that before? You've heard of TULIP or five-point five point Calvinism? Okay, a pretty significant amount. But I think there's a good amount of you in here who might say, this is the first time I've ever heard of this stuff. Uh, and so that's what I wanted to use our discussion time today for, is, is for those of you who, who have heard of this, maybe there's a dialogue of, what do you believe? What do, you, do you agree? Do you kind of agree? Do you not agree? Um, and then for those of you who have never heard of it, you might... Ask the people at your table who have heard of it questions. What, what does this imply? What does this mean? So take a few minutes um, and discuss TULIP with your table. Um, I'll leave the five points up. This, remember, TULIP is just kind of like a way that we can use to remember this pretty easily. If you can remember TULIP, you might be able to figure out the five points of Calvinism. Um, but go ahead and take a few minutes and discuss what this means for your faith. And if, if it's the first time hearing about it, ask lots of questions. And hopefully people at your table can help. So hopefully, like I said at the beginning, if, if this is the first time you've heard of Calvinism or five-point Calvinism, hopefully this time of discussion was good for you to kind of get some basic information about it. Um, if you've heard of it, or if you've just heard of it, there's one thing that can, that can be pretty clear right off the bat about Calvinism. And that's that the Calvinism, this pre, that if, if you're not familiar with it, it's like this, the, the discussion would be called like the predestination versus free will discussion. Um, people deciding, do we have free will to decide if we want to follow God or does God kind of choose for us? And the one thing that's really clear about it, right off the bat, is that it's a really hotly contested discussion. People um, have really strong opinions about it. People have these opinions that they're really defensive of. And it's caused quite a bit of a problem in the church because there's there have, been, there have been denominations that have split because of their beliefs about predestination and free will. There's, uh, there's, there's denominations that argue and bicker over their differences in opinions. Um, and it's a, I think it's really important for us to recognize that this is a hotly debated topic. Not only for, for when you choose, I mean, I think it's important for us to have a belief and for us to kind of look at it and, and study it and say, okay, I I'm comfortable with this, and I'm not comfortable with this, and kind of find out where you fall in this discussion. Uh, but it, it's also important to recognize that it's a really hotly debated topic. And I want to point out why I think this is. I think that these views, while they're really important for us to have, cause a, cause a lot of harm in and around the church. And I think for the world especially, they, see, they look in from the outside and they see us fighting over what we believe about this topic, and it causes a lot of issues. And I want to suggest to us, to everyone here today, and to me just as much as anyone else, is that we feel the need to defend that which we don't fully grasp. And what I mean by that is there are times where we get into these huge fights and split denominations and call people names and call people heretics, and hopefully in this day we're not burning people 
with slow fire to their death or cutting their heads off or anything like that. But we, we in a sense, cut them off from, from our friends or we cut them off from our churches because they believe something different. And this is a pretty significant thing. And there's this guy, his name is Slavoj Žižek. Uh, you might have heard of him before, but I'm guessing you probably haven't. Slavoj Žižek is a Marxist philosopher, which you probably didn't come to church thinking that you'd hear about a Marxist philosopher today in church. But I wanted to talk about Slavoj because he has this really interesting philosophy about culture. And he, basically what he says uh, is that cultures of any kind, whether it's the culture of the world, American culture, church culture, even New Life Church culture, your family culture, cultures of any kind are driven by this lack or a void. So you might have heard, I mean, in church culture, one way of kind of helping you understand this idea, you, you might have heard that we, were all, we all have a God-shaped hole in our heart. And it's kind of this cliche saying of we're all kind of trying to fill our hearts, fill our, this void with something. And the church would say that the only thing that would fit perfectly in your heart that would kind of really solve the problems that you're working with, the the gaps, if you were at the mill a few weeks ago, Daniel Grothy talked about these gaps that we feel in culture and in ourselves that kind of expose some, where something's amiss in our lives. And Slavoj would say that cultures are driven by this and there's a goal about kind of filling these voids. Um, and he calls, he, he, in addition to this idea of cultures being driven by voids, he talks about these things called eruptions of the real. And eruptions of the real, if I can explain it, hopefully it's really clear, but it's a little bit confusing, so I'll use some examples. Eruptions of the real are what happens when something occurs that presses on those voids. And it's not necessarily something that proves or disproves that the void exists. It's something that makes us aware that the void exists. So, like I said, a couple examples. You might have a friend uh, who, in in your history... Maybe even it was you at some point, or, or even you're working through this now, where you feel like your friend, or maybe your friend came to you, and you and a few friends were sitting down, and he said, I want to talk to you because I really feel like the church isn't that cool. And I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore, because while I see what the church says it's going to do, or while I see what the church says it provides for us, I don't feel like that's happening for me. So I'm going to stop coming to church. And if you have the right friends or the wrong friends, they're going to call an intervention and have a bunch of people come and tell him why the church is awesome and it needs to ha- he needs to keep going and he needs to be there every Sunday and all of this, which I, I believe that it is important to go to church. It's important to be with believers. Um, that's neither here nor there. But basically the idea is that when this friend comes to you and says, hey, I don't think I'm going to go to church anymore because of these reasons, you're all of a sudden aware that the void that kind of runs church is this void for needing community. So, and hit, well, in this sense. So it's like he says, I need community or I need to do things. And the church kind of isn't really doing that for me. And it, the church kind of says it's going to, or that's kind of what I'm expecting from church and it's not happening, so I'm going to stop going. Another one of these examples uh, is along this, the same lines of what we've been talking about today, salvation. A few years ago, there's this guy, he's a, he's a pastor and author, his name's Rob Bell. Have you guys heard of Rob Bell? Rob Bell writes a book a few years ago called Love Wins. And if you don't know what Love Wins is about, basically Rob Bell writes this book and asks a lot of questions that a lot of Christians aren't really that comfortable with. 
asking about what does salvation look like? When can it happen? What's the, what's the extent that God's grace can reach us? And he didn't necessarily come out and say one thing or the other, but a lot of people said, Rob, you're a universalist. You're saying that everyone just goes to heaven eventually, so it doesn't matter what we do here on earth. Um, and it caused all these problems. Like the whole church, people are writing blogs, people are condemning Rob Bell as a heretic, people are fighting, they're going on news stations saying Rob Bell is evil. And what it's doing is it's exposing this gap, it's exposing this disconnect in our culture of the church and saying that maybe we don't really fully grasp, grasp what exactly salvation looks like, what exactly it entails, um, to, to the full extent. And I, I want to say that I think that's okay. I think that there are some things where in, in our faith we're called to believe and we're called to do certain things in response, like, like I'll talk about in a second, but it's okay that we don't have like, the whole doctrine down. We don't have it nailed down to the point where we can explain it clearly because I don't think that's what we're called to do. So we get in these fights, these eruptions of the real, these rumblings, the, the church kind of explodes or culture explodes, and we, we say, wait a second, here's a point where this eruption happens, and Zizek talks about eruptions of the real, not to say that we should stop doing this, that these eruptions shouldn't happen, but what he's saying is that when these eruptions happen, we need to take note of them. And that's a really important thing for us as the church, because I think when Rob Bell writes a book and these eruptions happen, we can look at it two different ways. We can jump in the fight and we can say, Rob Bell, you're a heretic, or Rob Bell, you're my hero, because that's what I believe, whatever you believe. You know, you can jump in the fight and pick a side and get into it. Or you can take a step back and you can see these things happen and you can say, wait a second, this is exposing something. Like Zizek is kind of encouraging us to look at. This is exposing something in our faith where people have different opinions. And so what do you do when, when this is exposed? Like I said, you can get in the fight, or you can choose a different way. And that's kind of what I want to encourage us with. When we're talking about predestination and free will and salvation, we can have our opinions, and we can choose John Calvin or choose another side of this, this discussion. But at, at the core of the issue, we need to remember some things about what Jesus said and what, who Jesus said he was. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, uh, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I think as I was looking at this topic this week and kind of studying about Zizek and studying about Calvin and all the things that he had to say and the fights that he got into and the people that he killed for believing different things, I'd like to suggest that what matters less or what should matter less is convincing people to agree with us and what matters more is loving each other and loving people like Jesus told us to and like he would. So like I said, where do we go from here? We, we see these eruptions of the real in our culture. We see the eruptions of the real in our church, and we have a decision to make. So I'd like to tell us, or I'd like to suggest that we, we let them show us where it is that we may be missing the point. And like I said, it's not necessarily missing the point and saying, I believe this and I think I'm right, or I believe this and I'm realizing that I might be wrong. But it's more about the, getting in the fight or showing people who Jesus is. If you were at the mill on Friday night, Daniel talked about, um, he, or he read out of Isaiah chapter 58, and I want to read a little portion of what he read to kind of open his sermon on Friday night. 
And as we're in the season of Lent, I want you to think about, you know, like we're in a season of Lent where one of the main things that we do during Lent is we fast something. So you might even be right now, you might have been in a time where you're like, I'm not on Facebook for this period of Lent because I want to give it up and I want to focus my attention on God. And Isaiah says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. And so during this Lent season, and life as a whole, even beyond Lent, I, th- I want to encourage us to, to look for the ways where w- when these eruptions of the real happen or when you sit down with someone and they want to talk about Calvin- Calvinism and, or whatever, you're talking to a new believer, remember that it's not important to get people to b- agree with us all the time. It's not always the goal to get people to, to f- follow the same beliefs that we do. What's the most important thing, and like Jesus says, is to point people to him. Point, him, point people to the way, the truth, and the life. And that's really what, what we're called to. I think more than anything else, more than having a solid doctrine that we can tell people easily what it means and convince people of our way and convince people that we're right and they're wrong, is show people who Jesus is. And, he, and he's faithful to, to show him who he is too, to reveal himself to them. There's this guy who I heard speak a few weeks ago. He's a, kind of a popular author right now. His name is Bob Goff. And one of the things that he says is that the world won't know us by our opinions. One of the greatest contributions is the way that we'll love one another. So as we go from here, as we finish uh, this week talking about the Reformation and talking about all these really important things about what we believe, uh, about predestination, the things that Calvin set in place for us to, to follow in his path, the things with communion, where we, we, we really do hold to a lot of his beliefs, and we, I would say, owe a lot to Calvin. He's not always just this villain in church history. But more than any of that, more than all of the things that, w- that we believe and the things that our doctrine says is point people to Jesus and point people to knowing who he is. And, and more than anything else, more than any convincing argument you can make is, is the encouragement to follow Jesus. And he's faithful to show people who he is. So I just want to pray as we close and uh, Joe will come up and dismiss us. But Lord, would you... Would you remind us of the ways where we, we so easily get into these disagreements with each other in the church and these disagreements over important topics, Lord, but these, these things are uh, so small when it comes to knowing who you are, when it comes to just following you and, and being obedient to your will and your ways and to having a relationship with you, Lord. Would you show us the times in our lives where we, can, we have the choice to make to jump into the fight and add more confusion to the, to the mix or we have the option of drawing back and showing people who you are and pointing people to you over everything else, Lord. And would, would we be faithful with the call that we've been given to love our neighbor? Would we be faithful with the call when we have something to give and somebody needs what we have, Lord? Would we be generous with the things that we have? And would we take care of people who need food and take care of people who need shelter, Lord. And would you, would you help us to live like Jesus lived? Would you help us to
to love like he loved and more than anything else, God, that we would, um, we would be a people who the outside world could say they know what love looks like. They know what, who Jesus was and, and that they make it desirable, Lord. So would that be true about us as Sunday schoolers here at the mill? And would that be true about us as new lifers and as Christians, Lord? In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.